You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. You know, I want you to know that I have a bar that goes underneath my desk and I just have my little feet on it like a bird. <gasps> you little perch, you know what I mean? Perch little like bird. I'm perched like a bird. I love so. that for you. That's me, listeners. Um, you're listening to <laughs> Two Girls, One Crossword. <laughs> I'm Grace Topinka. Uh, and I'm Chelsea Rowan. This is your favorite weekly pod word crosscast. I also have a little bar under my desk, but I never perch on it like a bird. Mainly because, like, I feel like I'd have to reach too far for it, you know? It's, it's not close enough. Mine is the perfect perching. Actually, do I have a bar? Am I insane? Hold on, I'm looking now. Okay, don't mess up all your audio stuff. <laughs> I do you have, don't a bar. have a bar. You do? I do, I do. Okay. Oh my God. It is not, it's not, the reason I don't perch on it is because I didn't even know it was there, but I thought it was there, you know? It's kind of like, what's the, a mirage? If you don't perch on the bar does it even exist <laughs> if you don't perch on the bar below your desk listeners let us know do you put your feet on the little bar the, if you have a bar a perch bar do you use it i like that you called it a perch bar i'm here for that i feel like at work under certain desks like in the suites they have those like feet things do you know what i'm talking about yeah it's a foot rest but they're angled it's for your back right I don't know. They move and they move too. Yeah, I think it's for your. You, so you have your feet at an angle, to like help with your posture. I don't actually know anything about posture other than mine is shite. So there's a guy on TikTok who says posture doesn't matter, and I believe <laughs> so, anything. Can you start liking? Yes. His, can you start liking those videos, please? <laughs> I just need. I just need pop posture propaganda. Posture propaganda it's to make all me feel propaganda, good. Okay, it is. Yeah, it's fine. We're fine with our hunch. Yes, I've shrunk an inch. Since quarantine started, but she's that's shrunk totally an inch. Normal. Her hunch has, you know, I think probably increased by three degrees. But we're we're supportive here on this podcast, hunches and all. We love your spine curvatures. Should we get into our Polapalooza? <laughs> yeah, let's do polls. Polapalooza. We asked our Twitter Twitter followers. Twitter. I always feel like I, <laughs> I do that. It's hard to say, okay? Twitter followers. No, it, it is. It's hard. I'll give you Twitter that. Twitter followers. Uh, what was, I'll never <laughs> do that again. What was your 90s game slash toy of choice? And of course, there were a million to choose from, but I did the ones that you mentioned, then an extra added one in there. Ooh. Furby, Tamagotchi, Pogs from last week, or Hit Clips? Ooh. Hit clips um, were good. Was that 90s? I think it was, like, late 90s. Yeah. I had a Brit- Yeah, maybe it was later 90s. I had the Britney Still, Spears. Hit it me counts. baby one more time. Okay. Free bit- hashtag free Britney. Chelsea <laughs> and I just won trivia last night at our office for knowing tri- free Britney. That was, like, um, mm-hmm. the tiebreaker, essentially. The tiebreaker, yeah. Anyway, um, okay, so in first place with 57% was Tamagotchi. I had a Tamagotchi. I had a Tamagotchi once. I had a Tamagotchi once. Um, and I didn't know how to use it at all. And I think I probably tortured that poor digital pet of mine <laughs> to I death. just remember you had to like, clean up their poop and stuff. I don't even remember. I feel like I was, you had I to just didn't them, know how to play it. Clean them. I remember I had one that was a watch and it was like a Dalmatian. Cute. It was cute. Um, anyways, second place, 15% hit clips. Nice. All right. And then tied in last was Furby and Pogs. I also had a Furby and had no idea how to use it. I don't know if there was something to use, though. I think well, I just didn't get it. They came with, like, a dictionary of their language, but then I don't think it actually worked the way it was intended. 
Um, I had a Furby, but it was the only Furby left was a graduation Furby. So he had a graduation hat. And to plug myself, I do have a story on NPR, by the way, the yeah. moth, where I talk about my graduation Furby. It's good. I don't know. You can look back on our Twitter. I don't even know how to tell people about it. Maybe I'll link it <laughs> in the details. Oh, you should. You should link it in the details because Grace um, is hilarious and I don't know. She's on NPR. Get over it. Okay. Sorry, I've been on NPR twice, so I'm kind of a big deal. She is I, have, the I wasn't deal. really on NPR. They like played a recording of me somewhere else. But I'll still, take it. She still got played on NPR. They yeah. played her hard. Hard and fast, baby. Just how I like it. <laughs> Sorry, that was Jeff Bezos telling me that, alerting me to something. <laughs> Jeff, get out of my house. Sorry, I can't even say the name because then she'll think I'm talking to her. Mm. But you all know who I'm talking about. Mm, Everyone's personal robot that I got for free from my boss. Amazing. What did we? Where did we land? Are we still talking about toys? I feel like I would have picked a Barbie. I played with a lot of Barbies in the 90s. Mm, that's true well i didn't put it because i feel like barbies wasn't just a 90s thing you're right it's not as we learned from my episode she goes way it's back true. and she was like a pinup girl when she first came out it's true she was like a parody sex doll toy that for german men that's a fact yes. mm-hmm. for a fucking fact barbie was a pinup her eyes used to be like looking to the side coyly Ooh, so coy that- <laughs> uh that's actually i have memorized the title of that episode it is blue-eyed monster that's I a good episode. It's, it's a great episode. The Loch Ness monster too. Yes, and there's some twists and turns in that that I don't think anybody expected. Okay, there's a gynecologist mention in true that by name episode, and mm-hmm. you wouldn't think, but he's there. What does a gynecologist have to do with the Loch Ness monster? I guess you have to listen. Um, so much Nessie had a lot of issues. Okay, let's just put it that way. Nessie isn't real. <laughs> you name. Her after the Loch Ness. What does she say? It's like, my daughter was just bored and you nicknamed her after the Loch Ness monster or something. Yeah, something. Anyway. Um, those who we know, say? know about Jacob imprinting on Renesmee. Anyway, yep. moving on. Moving to our on. Non-Twilight fans. Mm-hmm. Should we go into our hits and shits? I have a corrections week? corner. Oh. Wow. Corrections corner. Okay. So I feel like if anybody follows us on Instagram, they probably like witnessed my corrections corner live on air. Oh yeah. Um, I saw that. <laughs> this is what happens when you post Instagram polls and you're like, I need to just get this out. And you just don't do the your due diligence. You don't do your research. Do your research, mm-hmm. folks. But whatever. Okay, I'm here correcting. So we have listeners to point out our our horrible mistakes. Anyway. So if you didn't witness it live on air, last week I posted an Instagram poll uh, or something like a post on Instagram um, of what I thought was Marie Antoinette's death mask. But it turned mm-hmm. out that it was very much not Marie Antoinette's death, death mask. Um, it was actually the death mask of a teenage girl who died in the Seine in Paris in the late 19th century. Uh, she was never identified. So it's kind of like a Jane Doe situation. Um, a listener brought this error error er, i hate saying that word error this mistake yeah. to my attention um and then she also provided a really interesting tidbit so i want to pass that on to you all now um in the spirit of good faith um so this death mask of this woman has become known as resussy annie uh and she's known as the most kissed woman in the world but what 
does that mean? Okay, so this girl died in this scene, and the pathologist who performed her autopsy was so taken with her serene expression that he had a model maker create a death mask of her face, okay? Uh, then he sold it, like, multiple times, replicated it and sold it. Mm-hmm. In the, so fast forward, in the late uh, 1950s, Archer Gordon, who was a member of the American Heart Association CPR committee, realized that a CPR dummy would have a great benefit to doctors learning CPR instead of, like, having to perform CPR on, like, other students and potentially, like, breaking ribs. Yeah. Um, they were like, a dummy would be better for this. <laughs> so he sought the help of a Norwegian toy maker, Osmond Lairdal. Mm-hmm. Lairdal had seen a reproduction of, you know, Annie's face, the woman from the Seine, as, like, a piece of art in a family member's house. Uh, and he was like, yo... Let's give the CPR mannequin, the dummy, this girl's face. So that's nineteen sixty. I know nineteen sixty. Uh, the Lairdal Company built the first CPR dummy, um, and they used her face, and she became known as Resussy Annie, the CPR dummy. Resussy as in resuscitate. Got it. So yeah, most kissed woman in the world. Well, I don't know if I'd qualify those as kisses, but yeah, and she's also sixteen when she died, potentially by suicide. Wow, that's wait. So is that still? I feel like the CPR dummies today are men. I guess how could you even know? I what am I guess saying? Great, we I have no idea. But yeah, that's 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 what I heard. Wild, yes. Um, I and worth the corrections for, corner. <laughs> yes, definitely. I tried looking for Marie Antoinette's death mask, like when I sent you pictures for the Instagram, yes. but I feel like they don't. They might be hard to find. Yes, yeah, so the one I ended I up replacing it with is a reproduction of the death mask, which apparently is in Madame Tussauds in London, in that mm-hmm. French Revolution section. Okay, because I was, like, looking for ones that, like, pictures of things that were in the French Revolution section, but I couldn't find a lot of photographs mm-hmm. on it. I'm like, I wonder if they keep this under wraps so that people go. I feel like they might, and it might be, like, no photos or something. Who knows? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Cool. Anyway, that's it and that's all on my corrections corner. Should we move into hits and shits? Let's. Um, Should we start with a shits? Oh, you have a shit? I have one. I know, I normally don't. Well, this is, I'm just going to pose this to you. So this is from the Wednesday New York Times by Michael Schlossberg. Um, And it was six down, caresses. And I had P blank TS. So Mm -hmm. I was like, pets. But it was Pat's. Do you feel yeah. like caress and Pat? No. The same I, I had the same exact feeling when Matt and I put Pat and we were like, if it's Pat, we're not happy about that. And it was Pat and we weren't happy about it. Because yeah. a Pat is like very like, good job. And a caress is like more like literally a caressing, rub. like a rub. Yeah. A gentle. Pets would have been fine. But mm-hmm. alas. That alas. Was shit. What can we do? I did like some others, though. I'm sure you saw 42 Across, Eldest Von Trapp Daughter. Of course. Liesel. Liesel. And I was like, well, because I know in real life, the there's the oldest is a boy. Yes. In the play. Oh, Liesel. Or, oh, yes. Well, the real family. In the real family. Excuse me. Yes. But I also think um, the play, it's a guy, a boy, too, still. I think they changed mm-hmm. it for the movie. I can't remember. No, no, no. Because the play, they have, they wanted, like, the Liesel and Rolf. Rom- romance so they had to make uh, her older uh, I think. Uh, uh-huh. okay it's just real life then folks you Anyways, can read the real von trap family <laughs> yeah we did a whole podcast on the von traps well on sound of music it's but true 
I just thought that was interesting. That's why mm-hmm. I said oldest daughter and oldest child because she is the oldest daughter in both versions, yep. real life mm-hmm. and movie. Um, and then I also just like 25 down, barely rains, spits, because I like spits. to say it's spitting. Yeah, it's spitting out there today, folks. Put on your rain slickers. Okay, speaking of spitting, it was snowing mm-hmm. the other day. I'm not trying to judge anybody, but it was like snowing, sort of. It was like those big flaky type snows, you know, it wasn't uh-huh. like a wet sleet by any means. It was like a very pretty, like gentle snow. And we're walking Neptune, my dog, of course. And I see someone leave their house and they use an umbrella to walk themselves to the car. And I'm like, why? I'm, I mean, like, is that judgy of me? Like, I've, why would well, people use an umbrella in the snow? I've never seen that before. The only thing I could think of is, like, if you have done your, like, heat styled your hair, if you get water, like, snow's water, so if you get snow on it, it would. Their hair was in a bun on the top of their head. So, yes, I thought the same thing. I was like, okay, fine. If you've done your hair really nice and you can't get wet and your makeup's done, I'm like, maybe they did take a long time getting ready. But their hair was in a bun. I was like, what do you, like, and they were walking to their car, which was like, down like not even half a block down the road i was like what are you doing anyway not to be judgy but i got nothing Sounds else to do <laughs> i'll start with the friday january 21st new york times by kyle dolan there's a couple from here that i liked 14 across be a big time troublemaker and the answer was raise havoc i just liked that it's like a fun mm-hmm. like answer to see in the puzzle 28 across pastry appropriate for a camping trip question mark the answer is bear claw. Cute. Bear claw pastry, which is just essentially a glazed donut. Not to like talk shit about people who like bear claws, but it's just a glazed donut. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 56 across. This one's for you, Grace. Legendary printmaker. And the answer was Yeti. <gasps> yes. Cute. And if you're interested in Yetis, listen to episode 85, Things Are Getting Hairy. It's a fun one. It was, I think it made my top topics of... 2021 from grace mm-hmm. so check it out it's very good uh yeah that's what i got from the friday new yorker thanks kyle i mean new york times sorry new york times rookie mistake um i did the usa today january 27th call uh by malika honda edited by molly Cowger and eric agard mm. and I feel like I mentioned this before. They have a couple crossword E's that I just, the clues were very, I was the target audience. So 12 across, the answer was Aria. And the clue was Pretty Little Liars character, which I have mentioned before. I was like, Aria is the main character in Pretty Little Liars. But that's Aria is always in crosswords and it's usually clued relating to opera. But I was like, they should do Pretty Little Liars clue. And they did. Yes. I wonder if they listened. They, they should have. Um, and then 13 across was Oreo, another common crossword fill. But they clued it as cookie eaten with peanut butter in the parent trap. Which I also think I may have seen before, but I still liked it. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then um, 16 down, theater blank. Someone who knows all the words to Hamilton, maybe. And it's theater nerd. Mm-hmm. And then 31 across was, with 32 across, teen detective in hundreds of books. And it was Nancy Drew. But it was, I liked it because it was, like, right next to each other. And I'm like, what's mm. the likelihood that they could get Nancy Drew next right to next each other? Right next to each like other that, in the crossword. In crossword. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love when that happens. Mm-hmm. So, 
just another reminder to keep I only did one USA today this week I used to do them more I feel like I've fallen off a little bit but I I think they're getting like or I feel like they're getting especially good I agree I've been trying to do more of them Mm mm-hmm I, I feel like I'm just so used to just typing in New York Times. I just need to remind myself mm-hmm. to go to USA Today. We did a couple this yeah. week as well. Not and that you're USA not doing Today it wasn't always good, but I think sometimes it's like it's a little easier. Mm-hmm. So maybe I don't do it, but I'm like, I should do it because some of the clues are really good and fun. Exactly. And like, I agree. More my speed. And for anybody who's listening that isn't someone who does crosswords all the time or like they there's like a you know, a price restriction, like you can't pay for the New York Times or the, you know, the New Yorker subscription, because they can be pricey. Check out the USA Today because you get a free puzzle every day. Um, If you pay like $5 a month for USA Today, then you can like access the archives and etc, which is fun, but you don't need to every day, you can just do their free puzzle of the day. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's an app. It's an app as well. You can do it online or you can do it on the app would recommend. Um, I got both of my brothers doing the USA Today. They do them every day. Um, I got, we got our friend Hannah doing the USA Today. Hey, I feel like we're converting people with the USA Today crossword. So slowly but surely. Slowly but surely. All right. So I liked a couple from the Saturday, January 22nd New York Times by Daniel Okulich. Uh, 32 across cognitive contortions. This was like a full spanner, uh, 15 across letter uh, spanner and the answer was mental gymnastics nice which is fun and then i like this one for like the double entendre of the the clue 44 across hose problem and the answer was kink but hose is spelled h-o-s-e like a garden hose but like mm-hmm. hose problem kink anyway i just maybe i'm reading into it but i liked that uh that was you know a cute way to clue that um uh, yeah that was good um, and then another like one offer that I liked was from the Monday, January 24th, New York Times by John Gazetta. I wasn't a fan of this theme, but not because it wasn't done well, but because it was football themed. So uh, 35 across social crafting event is a quilting bee. I had mm-hmm. I had never heard of quilting bee as like a thing before. So I thought it was just like really a cute name for mm-hmm. a crafting event. Um, and then if you didn't guess the theme of the puzzle was like revolved around quarterbacks like qb was the themed answers quilting b qb anyway oh right i did that one Mm. um the tuesday new york times by ray brunsberg and ellen brunsberg again i feel like we've seen before are you married are you sibling do you just have the same last name coincidence Mm -hmm. three down high high brow tower material question mark the answer was ivory and then I think, I don't know if I've seen this before, but 16 across, tongue, but not cheek. And the answer was organ. It, that was good. It took me a second yeah. to get that. And then when I got Same. it, I was like, oh, organ. Very good. I liked the theme from that one. The theme was, I believe it was from the Tuesday, January 25th, New York Times. Uh, the theme was game or games, oh, rather. Yes. I liked that theme as well. So each themed answer was just like a phrase that made sense with the clue, but each phrase had two famous board games or like kids games or like you know games in them for example 20 across general's responsibility question mark was war operation war being a game and operation being a game 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, 53 across editors of crosswords, for example, question mark. Clue checkers. Clue and checkers, duh. So that was really fun. I liked that. I, actually, uh, full disclosure, the theme went completely over my head because I'm insane for whatever reason. Something is Sometimes something is so obvious that you just can't see it. Um, and I had to, I was reading the Rex Parker blog and I was like, oh, that's, that's what, what it was. that is. <laughs> I feel like I figured it out after doing two and then, or yeah, I figured it out after doing two and then I was able to go back and finish the other ones. Another one that I liked from there was 29 for the theme, 29 across, apology from Iago. <laughs> it was sorry, Othello. Good. Yeah. Very good. Speaking of themes that I liked, did you do the Thursday, January 27th New York Times? We're recording on a Thursday, so it was today's puzzle mm. by Lewis Rothlein and Jeff Chen. No, I didn't do that one. I like this one because it felt tricky enough for Thursday, but like once you figured it out, you were like, oh, amazing. And also, I have known nothing about music, so mm-hmm. that's why it was tricky. But I feel like if you are familiar with how to read sheet music, then you'll be, you'll, you know, be able to get it probably much quicker than I did. Anyway, so essentially like space throughout the grid, uh, you would see these symbols or like you would see these, the, squ- the squares were like bookended by these two symbols. I didn't know what the symbols meant, but apparently um, it was like uh, it, the revealer is 47 down. What two sets of dots within double line, double lines indicate in musical scores? And the answer is repeat. Mm-hmm. And so in that any letters that were inside those dotted double line kind of symboled things mm-hmm. would repeat and it wouldn't repeat like like if the word cat was inside of it it wouldn't be like cat cat it would be or like cath cath it would be c a t h and then it'd go all the way back to the front does that make sense okay hold on i, I feel need like I have to see it visually let me tr- read you one okay 17 across, question after a digression. And the whole answer is, now where were we? But inside the dotted double line thing was E-R-E-W. So it was N-O-W-W-H-E-R-E-W. And then you go all the way back to the front, E-R-E-W-E. It's very complicated to explain on zoom without a visualization i'm sorry Um, i didn't do that what i was going to but then i didn't but maybe i'll do it after this yes you should definitely check it out um maybe this one will make more sense 30 across who wrote quote uh who controls the past controls the future who controls the present controls the past and the answer is george orwell but this is how it's spelled (laughs) i was gonna say rafiki (laughs) also known as rafiki um so it was the whole like letters all the letters of the answer are g-e-o-r-w-e-l-l so gior well we don't have that last part of george in the clue but because of the repeat george repeats the g-e-o-g yeah repeats again for george orwell does that make sense no. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, guys, you just have to trust me on this one. Go I to the Rex Parker blog. Yes, I, I. Well, I haven't done it, so. Okay, there and you go. If our listeners, I'm sure if, if anyone did it, then they probably understand more what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I'm also really bad at describing themes sometimes. Um, 
it's hard sometimes like you have to see it visually yeah um anyway it was a good theme i liked that thank thank you jeff and lewis you got anything else no i'm done okay i have one more thing i'm gonna call out i have to call out the new yorker from this wednesday january 26th by eric agard uh there's a couple in here that i loved i thought you would like them as well 31 across portmanteau for accessories that provide oral sensory input and the answer is chewlery like chewlery oh okay i think those are usually used for people that need to uh stim you know yeah um and they're like kids or kids like little leather pieces that you can like chew on or something Mm -hmm. they're not talking about like like candy jewelry yeah it's like it's like for that oral sensory like thing yeah um, I used to chew on my hair as a kid, and I feel like I could have done lots of good things with a piece of jewelry <laughs> if I had had one. Um, also from that puzzle, six down words followed by letters, question mark. Let's keep in touch. Very cute. That was a full 15 or down, I believe, or maybe that was a 14 one. Anyway, and then this one is for us, Grace. I feel like it was directly for us. 14 mm-hmm. down, tracksuit Robert Pattinson, for example. Meme memes nice very good thank you eric always always a blast Um, always a pleasure always a pleasure does that mean it's time for us to do our coin flip flip the coin baby because i got a lot to talk about today okay all right everyone buckle up i'm flipping the coin now It's heads. I'm back on my bullshit, and I will never let up. Never. She will never let me forget about it. Fine, I'll just close my iPad and sit back and listen. (laughs) My topic comes from the Monday, January 24th, New Yorker by Patrick Berry, 49 across. Place that'll rent you a set of wheels. Roller rink. Roller rink. I was going to do that. Were you? Yeah, but I didn't. Um, Lucky you. Wow. For those listeners who are new, potentially, or maybe have missed topics where Grace and I have picked the same topic, it is a very rare occurrence. I think it maybe happened twice total. With Incubus and End of the World. Yes, World of the Four Horsemen. Yes. Yeah, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Um, but it does happen. But it doesn't happen often. Grace and I have different interests. That's what makes this podcast interesting, okay? Although I would say Grace is interested in roller rinks. Our interests do Venn yeah, diagram I, touch I sometimes. I looked into it and I even, I read a couple articles, but I ultimately decided on something else. Wow. So she know she's coming in with a little bit of knowledge, folks. I'm wondering how deep she dove. But let's dive I forgot in together. Everything, so okay, good. Take good it away. Good. All right. So roller skating. I'm, t- I'm talking about roller skating mostly, not specifically roller rinks. Mm-hmm. Although roller rinks obviously play an important part of the history of roller skating. But anyway, we're going to talk about roller skating, which is a recreational activity. It can also be a sport or like a mode of transportation. Um, but it wasn't always just roller skating or roller rinks. It started with ice skating, of course. So ice skating dates way, way, way back to the Bronze Age when people throughout essentially Eastern Europe and Russia built skates out of animal shin bones. Uh, that would let them glide across open expanses of ice. Um, And they are very, very different to what we know as ice skates today. The Mm -hmm. shin bones are like 
Think about any dog bone that you've seen kind of flattened out and then they're more like inline roller blades, I guess you could say. Um, yeah. But they skate across ice. Um, and according to Federico Fermenti, uh, a physiologist and sports scientist at King's College London, the most common way to travel in the Netherlands in the 15th century was to skate. The Dutch used canals to power water mills and irrigate their farmland in the summer. But during the winter, those waterways became frozen highways for people to travel or skate on, which I think is kind of cool. That would be um, fun. I know, right? And you can actually still do it today. It's not as like icy or winter wonderland as I'm assuming the 15th century was, but mm -hmm. you know, it gets cold over there. And then of course, ice skating has evolved over the past 3000 years. Most importantly, the evolution of ice skating uh, is seen to be a direct inspiration to how, for how to like travel on dry land when it isn't like freezing cold outside. Mm -hmm. You know, people who loved ice skating we're like, well, how can I do this when it's not cold? Fair That's question. how it all started. So then it takes us to the 18th century, which is the 1700s. We're going to introduce you to a man named John Joseph Merlin. I feel like we would have been, probably been friends with this guy. Well, maybe not. But like, if he had been born in like now, I feel like his mm -hmm. energy would mesh with our energy. He was born in September of 1735 in, Bel uh, in Belgium. He was a Freemason a clockmaker, a musical instrument maker, an inventor. While alive and inventing, he was referred to as the, quote, ingenious mechanic. Uh, he made all sorts of things. Most famously, he made a ton of automations or automatons, which we talked a little bit about when we were talking about Fabergé eggs. Essentially, they're just like robots without like electricity. Mm -hmm. They like, they're automatons. Like they have like cogs and shit and they're like little ma machines, right? Some of his most famous automatons are the Cox timepiece and the Silver Swan, which you can actually see in like museums and stuff, and they're actually beautiful and gorgeous. Uh, I'm not going to go into what they are. Mm -hmm. Look them up if you're interested. He also made instruments and wheelchairs and much, much more. Uh, for instance, he is credited with the invention of the inline roller skate in the 1760s. Uh, this is a fun story uh, from a guy named Thomas Bugsby, who wrote uh, the Concert Hall and Orchestra Anecdotes. And this is from this Thomas Bugsby published this in like the, the early 1800s, recounting a story of this Merlin character and his skates. Quote, one of his ingenious novelties was a pair of skates contrived to run on wheels. Supplied with these and a violin, he mixed in the motley group of one of Miss Crowley's masquerades at Carlisle House. When not having provided the means of retarding his velocity or commanding its direction, he impelled himself against a mirror of more than 500 pounds value, dashed it to atoms, broke his instrument to pieces, and wounded himself most severely. Oh my gosh. Um, and then if that was like a little too complicated for you to understand, I'll read you uh, the same account from The History of Roller Skating, written by James Turner and Michael Zadman. Quote, so he was going to this like costume party. As mm -hmm. his costume, he donned his roller skates and a violin and began to skate around the party playing the instrument. Although well-known as an inventor and musician, John Merlin was not a good skater. He couldn't control his speed or command his skates to go in the desired direction and wildly crashed into a huge and expensive mirror, smashed it to bits, severely wounded himself, broke his violin, and sent roller skating technique back to the drawing board. End quote. Oh my gosh. Imagine, What a like, way to come to a party. I know. That's what his whole thing was like. I want to show up and, like, make... Like, enter this party with a bang because I want people to, like, want my roller skates. Mm -hmm. 
So even though like he kind of had to like work on the invention, roller skating caught on, mm-hmm. didn't tie out. Um, so, but even so, the popularity of roller skating wasn't immediate. During the 1800s, we kind of started seeing skates pop up randomly across Europe in various ways. For instance, in 1818, there was a German ballet that called for ice skating, but they couldn't put ice on stage, so they used, like, a primitive, like, roller skate. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the 1840s, beer halls in Germany, there's one called Course Hall near Berlin. They had barmaids put roller skates on and served customers, like, to be more efficient Mm -hmm. um, because beer halls can be literally massive. So Mm -hmm. it's, like, the early days of, like, drive-ins i guess or what's the the roller like the a and w where you drive up and they skate out to your car exactly early days of that um and then like we start seeing patents for roller skates happen uh in 1819 the first patent for dry land skate was awarded to a guy named uh monsieur petit bladin uh, <laughs> that's him uh the skate was made of wood uh, had a sole that was made of wood. It was attached to the bottom of a boot. And it was fitted with two to four rollers made of copper, wood, or ivory. And they were aligned in a straight line. That was the first patent. And then the second patent was 1823. Robert John Tyres of London patented a skate called the Rolito, which had five wheels in a single row on the bottom. Um, and the Rolito was unable to follow a curved path, unlike the inline skates that we have today. Mm-hmm. And then in 1863, James Leonard Plimpton, what a name, was born, uh, he was born in 1828 in Massachusetts. He revolutionized skating with the invention of the four-wheeled turning skate, a.k.a. the quad skate or the rocker skate. So Plimpton made the roller skates that we know, like the quad ones. Mm -hmm. The skate contained a pivoting action using a rubber cushion that allowed the skater to skate a curve just by pressing his weight to one side or the other, most commonly by leaning to one side. Uh, and then the late 1800s was a time of massive success for roller skating, thanks in part to Plimpton's invention, which allowed easier turns and maneuverability, uh, therefore making skating much easier and much more accessible. With skating becoming more popular, that meant people needed places where they could skate without issues. Most people were skating at home, or like mm-hmm. kids would throw skates on and like literally go skating down massive hills in cities and like collapse and like hurt themselves some kids died doing this like it's crazy oh my god yeah so i'm just going to go through some like milestones of where we see roller rinks or roller whatever places pop up Mm -hmm. in 1857 uh, in london we see the earliest roller rinks uh, in at the strand and also at floral hall in 1866 james plimpton the creator of the quad skate opened the very first american skating rink Uh, He opened it just one year after the end of the Civil War. He rented out a hotel in Newport, Rhode Island. uh, And this place had served, uh, like, something to do with the Navy during the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Um, He turned the hotel's dining room into a rink, brought in rental skates by the truckload, and gave a war-weary populace a diversion from the traumas of civil conflict and presidential assassination. That's from a really good article. I'll call out some articles at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1877, the Royal Skating Indoor Skating Rink was built in Brussels. In 1902, we come to Chicago. The Chicago hey. Coliseum opened a public skating rink with over 7,000 people attending the opening night. Wow. That's I been s- huge. 
I read online somewhere. I couldn't find it again because I think I might have clicked out of the article, but it was the largest ever skating event. Mm-hmm. And I think it still holds that record to this day, just like the number of people in the amount of time that the event took place over. Uh, 30 years later, at the Chicago Coliseum, the first roller derby competition was hosted there by the Roller Skate Rink Owners Association. Um, and it actually became the place, like the birthplace of roller derby. I had no idea. Oh, I didn't know that either. That's kind of cool, right? Um, roller derby is huge here. I know yeah. tons of people that do roller derby. Um, according to the Library of Congress, in 1905, roller skating was more popular than any other form of entertainment, such as dancing, in the United States. Uh, and by 1906, roller skating rinks, uh, were, they were, used to be mostly in, like, urban areas, but they were, by 1906, they were making their way into more rural areas. Um, mm -hmm. and then by 1908, we see Madison Square Garden turning into a roller rink for the citizens of New York City. So, let's move up to World War II. America, begin, America begins to rapidly suburbanize. We got, you know, suburbia showing up and people, you know, mass fleeing from the cities to go live in, like, very small towns or whatever. Um, and roller rinks were like, hey, let's follow. And they did. In the 1940s, 8,000 rinks operated nationwide and an estimated 18 million people skated. So, it was a huge... It was a pastime. huge diversion, a pastime, if mm -hmm. you will. The archetype of the roller rink that we know, like when you think of like a classic roller rink, what do you think of? Like DJ booth. Um, I don't know. Like uh, that place that we went for Priscilla's birthday. Exactly. Like it has kind of like a mid-century vibe to it, honestly. Mm -hmm. Like a big neon sign outside. You have like the molded plastic seats, like the weird carpet, yeah. the beautiful maple flooring. The DJ booth is huge. So that is kind of like the blueprint for roller rinks that we know today. Mm -hmm. Even people that are starting roller rinks now are modeling their roller rinks after that kind of archetype. And we have the 40s to thank for establishing that archetype, especially one of the most popular roller rinks of all time, uh, which was uh, founded in 1940-something or other. It's called the Levittown Arena in Levittown, Long Island. Um, it has one of those great big neon signs outside. You could see it right from the highway to kind of like invite people over. Um, inside was a 200-foot rink under fluorescent lights with a live organ player. That was a huge thing. Most skating rinks in the 40s, 50s, and 60s had a live organ player to play music to skate to, mm -hmm. which I thought was really cool. And on weekends, the Levittown Arena might see 1,700 skaters wow. on any given day. That's good for organ players because I feel like they're kind of limited. They are. I also just feel like in the 40s, there's not much going on. I'm not surprised there were 1,700 people at the roller rink, to be completely frank. Yeah. So let's fast forward to the 50s. Another famous roller rink from the 50s. This one is still around the Levitt Town Arena, closed in the 80s, sadly. It was demolished. Mm -hmm. But in the 50s, the Moonlight Rollerway opened in Glendale, which is north of L.A. Uh, the rink was originally an aircraft parts-like factory converted into a roller rink. Um, it has that classic multicolor fluorescent lighting inside. It has the big neon sign outside, a snack bar, molded plastic furniture, original maple flooring. And a vintage organ, which is so cool. So then, of course, we have to move into the 60s. Mm -hmm. Roller rinks were always a center for community, but especially so in the 60s during the civil rights movement. 
Um, this is like where I'm going to like wrap up. It's a little bit of a longer section, so bear with me. And I got my information for this section from some really amazing articles. I'm going to call them out here. These are not the only ones, but these are like the big ones. Um, roller Skating to Freedom, A History Behind Black Roller Skating Culture by Rosalia Marnico on Criterion Now. Also, The Rich History of Black Roller Skating Rinks and Their Civil Rights Legacy by uh, Elenia Demolopoulos on Daily Beast. And also, How Black and Brown Women Are Reclaiming Scholar uh, Roller Skating Culture by Amanda Alcantara on Refinery29. So, let's get into it. In the 1950s, skating rinks uh, offered only one night a week where Black community members could come together to skate. Originally, this night was called Black Night uh, mm -hmm. or even Hell Night. Lovely. Oh, good. Yeah. So despite segregation and discrimination, roller skating became an outlet for black individuals to kind of like skate and be free and be themselves. Uh, so I want to pause here and mention a film by the name of United Skates. It came out in 2018. Uh, it's on HBO if you want to watch it, directed by two women, Tina Brown and Diana Winkler. Essentially, the film explores the history of black skating culture um, and how roller ranks specifically were integral to the black community. Um, and, quote, that black individuals didn't have to abide by white rules, listen to white music, or play by white standards. They were free to be their complete selves. And that is how uh, this culture was able to survive. So that's, like, in the film. Mm -hmm. And so in all of the articles I mentioned earlier, they all reference this film. So a lot of what I talk about is going to kind of tie back to the film. Anyway, so in the film, there's a skater from Illinois named Reverend Cohen uh, and he talks about how rinks were the site for many peaceful protests during the civil rights movement. So uh, black Americans spent a lot of time, even though it was segregated, they spent a lot of time at roller rinks. And that's kind of how this like community, this black skate community fostered. Um, and because of that, roller rinks, similar to how we talked about like in the YMCA episode, YMCAs became like epicenters for civil rights leaders to kind of like meet and discuss and like protest and whatever. Mm -hmm. Roller rinks similarly had these kinds of meetings and like gatherings. But here's the thing. Uh, at the roller rinks, they weren't, like, allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and so they would do these peaceful protests there, and then the KKK would show up and beat the crap out of them. And then the roller rinks would get shut down because, as Cohen says, blank, uh, quote, they would rather die than integrate, end quote. Hmm. Sadly. Which is really sad for black communities as well because this was, like, a place where they would go to, like, have community gatherings. Mm -hmm. And now the roller rink is closed. And it, like, kind of cuts them off from that place together. Anyway. Um, however, a motto came out of these hardships, like the roller rinks closing and these protests being, like, ambushed. And it was, quote, forever, for forward forever, and backwards never. Which That's I like. Nice. Mm -hmm. uh, and then a man named Ledger Smith, a.k.a. Roller Man, he skated 685 miles from Chicago to Washington, D.C. To, to attend the March on Washington, wearing a placard that read freedom around his neck. Um, he's a black man from Chicago. Um, mm -hmm. He was part of the black culture or the black skate culture in Chicago. And he skated to see Martin Luther King speak in Washington, D.C., which is amazing. He lost 10 pounds along the way. The photos yeah, from damn. his skate are amazing. Um, although he was like attacked and almost killed mm -hmm. in Indiana. Go figure um like run off the road just not surprising mm -hmm. um anyway so that was all happening like while there was explicit segregation um 
as explicit segregation kind of ended in the mid-60s, racism and white-owned ranks had to become more subtle. Black knights uh, was no longer a, like an acceptable term to call like the black-only skate knights. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so white owners of skate rinks had to come up with coded ways to describe it, such as MLK night, sepia night, soul night, and gospel night. Mm. This progression is shown in the film United Skates. Uh, Diana Walker, co-director of the film, says, quote, What's interesting is that audiences who are predominantly white get uncomfortable during that moment. You can hear gasps or shock or frustration. When you show the same scene to an audience of predominantly black viewers, they laugh. They laugh because it's so obvious. Yep, that's another one. For me, that was one of the one of those eye-opening moments about how white America is so ignorant that we're still surprised by police brutality, end quote. Roller rinks are also credited in the film as lending to the birth of hip-hop, which I thought was a really interesting fact. Uh, rappers would actually perform at roller rinks when all uh, like other like venues would say, like, no, we're not having rap here. Like, you can't have rap here. So they would mm-hmm. go to the community centers in their neighborhoods, which are the roller rinks, and perform their sets there. And this is more in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, Winkler said in an interview with Vice, quote, Skaters would tell us all the time, we saw so-and-so at the rink, this person grew up with us, Dre was a DJ at the rink when he was young. We were trying to show the importance of roller rinks as community spaces that helped give rise to these hip-hop artists uh, that were centerpieces for early civil rights battles. One of the first sit-ins in the country was at a skate-in uh, at a roller rink, end quote. They actually also found footage of Queen Latifah performing like one of her very first sets at a roller rink when she was like 19 or 20 in LA, which I thought was really cool. Oh my gosh, amazing. Apparently they said it was hard to get the rights to have that mm-hmm. in the film, but they ended up getting the rights. John Legend produced the film, so that's probably how they got it, but it was cool. Yeah. Um, one of the most interesting things that I found through my research was most of like the history of roller rinks or history of skating talk about how the popularity of skating always like came and went, came and went. Like there's periods of like insane craze about skating and then it like died and like Mm -hmm. all the rinks were closing and nobody was going skating, blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, is like that was for white Americans. Black Mm -hmm. people were always going to roller rinks and always use them as community centers. And it's like a huge Mm -hmm. part of like a lot of black um, communities is the roller rink. And so it kind of feels like like erasure really when they're talking about how like roller skating is dead and like nobody was interested in roller skating after the 70s and it's like people were roller skating they just weren't white people for instance in the article uh, on daily beast reggie premier brown is a black skater from new york he says quote one of the biggest things you can do is learn the history i've seen articles that have said roller skating was irrelevant since the 70s okay so what have i been doing for the last 20 years no it hasn't been irrelevant Roller skating has continued to survive because of the African-American community and our ability to open up to the culture, uh, open the culture up to others who want to learn it, end quote. All of that said, due to the pandemic, roller rinks are going out of business at a rapid rate. Mm -hmm. According to Groovy History, on average, about three roller uh, rinks go out of business every month in recent years. Uh, it's important to realize why places like skate rinks are important to black communities. Skate rinks have played an important role in the fostering of black community, like, for instance, the civil rights movement, like helping expand the hip hop like scene. Um, 
And films like United Skates showcase the significance of skating rinks for uh, black activists who are fighting to keep rinks open as they face closures. And then a DJ in the film captures this sentiment quite succinctly. He says, quote, you can take the goddamn building, but you can't take the spirit, end quote, which I loved. So mm-hmm. now I have to watch this film. I know. Well, that was when I did the research. I The film came up a lot, like when I was oh. just doing the preliminary stuff. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that looks good. It does look good. Um, these girls were like just going to Central Park and like hanging out with a bunch of like black skaters. Mm-hmm. And they're like, this is really cool. Let's just film them. And then they got invited to like a skate party. And they're like, this is really fucking cool. And then they're like, whoa, like, I don't know, like, can we tell this story? And like, all the skaters are like, please tell this story. It was just a really interesting production story as well um, about how like the film actually ended up getting made. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I thought that was interesting. I also feel like um, I know more and more people picking up skating now because it's becoming, or I see it on TikTok a lot. Yes. There is a lot of that that I found as well. Like, the quote rise of skating again skating is back mm-hmm. and it, and then i found like, like it's a always lot of, been, been yes. there um i found like a lot of like uh black and brown people talking about how we skate and we have been skating and you have to yeah. recognize like the history like please join us like we want you to skate but the reality isn't like this white tiktoker who mm-hmm. is viral now because they skate and like oh they're bringing skating back it's like skating has been here these people have been skating like their entire lives. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Interesting. Very much so. I wish I was better at skating, but I'm so bad at it. <sighs> you're, you're decent. I, I mean, I haven't had. Oh, I guess we did go that. I was thinking yeah. about ice skating. We went, we went roller we went skating that one a couple time. years ago. Yeah. I feel like I'd have to be, do it more regularly. Like when I first got on the, the rink, I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> And now that I'm like turning 30, I'm like, should I even be out here? I don't want to like hurt I, well, my now back. Now it's like I can't, I cannot uh, afford to like break anything or hurt anything. <laughs> you know, when you're a kid, no. it's like you don't care about breaking. Could you imagine wrist. like having to have like walk around in a boot for like six months? Yeah, it would t- kill my entire vibe. No. Well, anyway, we will not be skating. I think sometimes we're like, well, we'll tell you how it goes next time. Yeah, this is not one of those we're going to be like, yeah, no. But I love watching people skate. People who are good at it. It's yeah, like we, so. Um, it's really satisfying. Yeah. It is. Well, they make it look so easy. Well, that's like the thing. I'm like, oh, I could do that. People yeah. are like going backwards and stuff. And then I'm like, wait, never mind. I can never do that. We worked with somebody who is an incredible skater. Mm-hmm. She's amazing. And I love anytime she posts like an Instagram story skating. I'm like, damn. Yeah. Oh, my God. You're amazing. But I'm like, I could never. Couldn't be us. Not us. And that's OK. We can accept that. Yeah. So my topic actually comes from that same puzzle, the Monday, January 24th, New Yorker by Patrick Berry, but it's 40 down Broadway misfire. What is this, like turkey or something? Turkey. What the heck is this? Well, I will let you know. Hold on. My light's turned off. Okay. So what is a turkey in Broadway terms? So a turkey is a flop or a show that doesn't make it far past opening night. And I tried to look up where the term turkey came from, and so I read a couple different things. One place said that um, it comes from early U.S. vaudeville theater, where they would put on a show every day, even on Thanksgiving. But the Thanksgiving shows never had 
good acts because everyone all the good actors and stuff were all off celebrating thanksgiving Mm. so basically you had a show of you know the second tier actor or boring loser acts which became known as turkey day shows or just turkeys okay other people said it's because turkeys have like really low iqs so it's just like a bad thing okay um but anyways so yeah basically a turkey is a show that flops okay so and i'm only talking about broadway musicals not um plays plays okay so broadway musicals typically cost 10 to 20 million dollars to make and since the 1760s it's been pretty consistent that about 80 percent of shows fail to make back what they've spent so that's terrible odds that's horrible um yeah so lots of lots of shows um losing money they're not all necessarily turkeys but a lot of flops and we're going to talk about some of the biggest ones okay but first let's do a quick overview of how like a show typically gets onto broadway because it'll come up so first you have the idea obviously you have the show then you do workshops which is like a very low budget versions of the show sometimes like if you have certain producers they can actually give you like a real full theater production but that's like to attract investors and producers um then you raise a lot of money with these investors and producers and it's usually like a group of them and it's more and more now like hadestown came out a couple of years ago and they had 40 producers for hadestown okay um then you have auditions and rehearsals and then you have something called tryouts which is where the play tours the country um and performs at regional theaters around the world for regular hmm. audiences and they make a bunch of changes to the play at this time. So they could be like changing scripts, changing songs, depending on audience reaction. So they're like trying out the play. Hmm. It gets kind of confusing because tryouts seem like auditions, mm-hmm. but the okay. play is trying out. Got it. Um, and then before it used to be after doing tryouts, you would come back and have previews on Broadway. And that's like a couple nights before opening night. And um, you're like testing out technical stuff. And back in the day, they used to be um, the tickets for previews would be really cheap. Because it's like, you know, audiences don't want to pay like full Broadway price if the show's not even completely fleshed out and ready. But mm-hmm. these days, it's not like that anymore. It's still expensive to go see previews. Mm. Um, and now they're saying it's not as common for plays to do tryouts because it gets really expensive to tour. So instead, they'll either just do one regional theater and stay there for weeks or they'll even be in previews on Broadway for weeks before opening night. Damn, okay. And it used to be that critics couldn't come until opening night. So some plays would like keep would stay in previews for a really long time and just keep like pushing out opening night before like critics would come and, um, you know, tear them down. Okay. So, um, that's not true anymore, though, because previews are still expensive, blah, blah, blah. But anyways, once you get on, you have your opening night. Um, you just try and keep it running for as long as possible. But some plays only make it to like six performances after all of that really and, yeah and we're gonna talk about a oh couple of them my god so, okay um in 1966 they tried to do a broadway adaptation of breakfast at tiffany's okay but based on the book by truman capote not on the audrey hepburn movie ah. so the novella is about an enigmatic society girl named holly go lightly and the book is a mood piece without a linear plot mm. so that's already hard to adapt into a yep. play but it also wasn't helped by the fact that the movie adaptation had done so well. It had won an Oscar and featured a very charming Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. So audiences like came into the theater already with, you know, specific expectations. But the play decided to be more based off the um, Holly in the book, not in the movie. And that 
Uh, in the book, she's more brazen. She's like more sexual. Um, so, but people didn't like that when they came in. In tryouts and stuff, people didn't like it. They brought in Edward Albee, who wrote Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, to make changes, but that didn't help either. And then when they actually were on Broadway, Mary Tyler Moore was played Holly Golightly. Really? And she's known for like her wholesomeness. So all of a sudden, she's like foul mouthed, sexual characters. My God. Audiences did not like it. It only played for four shows in previews before closing. Wow. I feel like I probably would have liked it. I know. Well, well, we'll talk about some of these flops and like, you know, because some of them do get revived, do okay. get like a cult following. And I'm not talking about it now, but Rocky Horror Picture Show is one of those, by the way. Talk about in the Rocky Horror Picture Show episode. It was originally a Broadway play, flopped, movie flopped, and then it had like became a cult Got classic. It. So um, producers actually tried to revive uh, which one? Breakfast at Tiffany's again in 2013, and they had Amelia Clark play her. Um, really? But it was only slightly more successful and closed after 38 performances. So okay. it's a very rare double flop, a double turkey. Wow. Okay. Didn't have a chance. Um, okay, this one I love. Via Galactica was in 1972. There's a lot of bad stuff in the 70s and 80s, <laughs> like rock operas, laser tags, cat style, but oh somehow cats God. rose above it all, but these didn't. It was a science fiction space musical Okay. with music by Galt McDermott, who composed Hair a few years Ooh. earlier. It was set a thousand years in the future, had laser beams, flying spaceships, and trampolines embedded onto the floor to s- simulate weightlessness in space. And the plot was so crazy that the playbill actually had little inserts of plot synopsises to help the audience because it was so confusing. Oh, my God. Um, and it only made it to seven performances. Could you imagine showing up to a, like, a play and being like, you have to read the plot first? You're like, uh, yeah. sorry. I mean, I already read the playbill front to back and like read everyone's <laughs> background. So <laughs> I have extra stuff to read. But yeah, so seven performances. Um, and then you've probably heard of Bye Bye Birdie, which was not a flop. That was a very successful Broadway play. In 1981, they tried to make a sequel called Bring Back Birdie. The sequel picks up 20 years after the first, when Albert and Rosie are offered money to find Conrad Birdie, the teenage heartthrob from the first mm-hmm. show. And Rosie actually re- reprised her role. She came back for it. Um, it closed after four performances. Okay. The writer tried to make another musical sequel to another one of his shows, Annie, and it was called Annie 2, Miss Hannigan's Revenge. Okay. <laughs> but it didn't what make a it great title. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a horror movie. It really does. Um, but that didn't make it past tryouts either. It's okay. like, dude, you had two good plays. Move on. Either write a third one or you like a sequel's on. not going to happen. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, in 1986, there was a show called Into the Light. This is this one is like uh, very famous too for how bad it was. It was based on the 1978 scientific examination of the Shroud of Turin to determine if it could be Jesus Christ's burial cloth. So that was like a real scientific right. <laughs> like, thing at the time. So that was like the basis of this music, and it's a musical, not a play. It only lasted six performances. Audience felt it was too science heavy with lyrics such as science without data will not get you from alpha to beta. But <laughs> yeah, that's a lyric. Um, but it wasn't all science. There was some fantastical parts like the archaeologist archeologi- archeolo- son who was so neglected by his work obsessed father made, makes up an imaginary friend in the play who is a mime. So there is a mime character an imaginary mime i'm sorry i'm sorry 
it's too yeah. much. I, I go for wild things, but I don't know if I could do <laughs> Jesus cloth plus mime fantasy. And lasers. Like oh. it was like cat style type of situation. What the F? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Widely considered one of like the most expensive, biggest turkeys flops is Carrie the Musical based on Stephen King's book. Uh. <laughs> so the show did tryouts in England where there's a bunch of technical malfunctions. The actress who played Carrie's mom actually quit before opening night because she was almost decapitated on set. Oh. <gasps> Because um, there's, you know, Carrie has, like, telekinetic power so mm -hmm. she can make things float. So there's a lot of, like, weird stuff trying to get stuff to float. The infamous pig blood scene was also hard to pull off because the blood always ruined Carrie's microphone. Act 2 opened with a song about killing pigs. And theater critic Frank Rich wrote in the New York Times, quote, No expense has been spared in bringing the audience some of the loudest oinking this side of Old McDonald's <laughs> farm. <laughs> Okay. Uh, the show only lasted on Broadway for five performances, and the reviews were horrible, but it has since gotten a cult following. So it was almost impossible to find a copy of the playbook music, as they had all been destroyed. Sure. But bootlegs from New York and England performances started making their rounds, and it became a staple for high school and college theater clubs. Ah. It inspired parodies. And one of its songs, When There's No One, actually is a popular solo audition song. Okay. So all of this ongoing interest led to an off-Broadway revival in 2012 that actually did pretty well, although they did change a lot of the songs. Mm. And the popular show Riverdale even had their high school do a production of Carrie the Musical. That's hilarious. That is hilarious. Yeah. And Stephen King said, like, he was like, all the reasons the critics hated it, it like, I loved it. I thought it was so good. But he he's like, <laughs> Broadway wasn't ready for that type of sure show then because yeah. that wasn't like the vibe of broadway right. he thinks that it would do better now mm. um okay well let's get into some 21st century stuff so we talked about this when we were on filmian's podcast okay. rocky in 2014 okay <laughs> so rocky was obviously a very popular movie mm. franchise but you know it moved on to it became a broadway musical it's not exactly the same demographic that not at all into both but some people might like both it only lasted for six months but the craziest scene is towards the boxing match at the end. So I like kept reading about this and then I had to look it up to see for myself like what it looked like because it's hard to understand. But basically audience members in the front row, they have to get up from their seats and they walk onto the stage where there's a new set of seats for them. And then a boxing ring like juts out into the middle of the, the theater so that it mimics like an actual boxing match. Mm -hmm where the, the, the audience ring is all is around. The, yeah. Okay. And then there's like uh, jumbotrons, you know, up there with like uh, okay. announcers or whatever. Sure. So it's like a real boxing match. And um, it flopped. Obviously, it only lasted six months. But the musical actually did really well in Germany. Go figure. Okay. And you can find a bootleg copy in Germany or in German on YouTube if you want to check out how they do the stage. It's like crazy but oh my god just such a wild premise that reminds me of um once did you ever see once the movie or the play mm -hmm. i um, saw the movie i saw the play um on you know off broadway um mm -hmm. at the schubert in new haven and well, off, off broadway sorry 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 because off broadway just means another theater in new york but not on broadway off off broadway mm -hmm. in new haven um and during intermission and at the end they invite you to come up on stage and like order beer 
and like interact with cast members and stuff like from yeah. the bar. And I was like, I will not go on stage. I will not do it. <laughs> um, if I was there, we would have gone. I on. know. Cats used to have people go. Cats doesn't close their curtains during intermission. They used to have people go on stage. So I and just, sometimes. Did you see the TikTok? I saw the TikTok of Deuteronomy okay. just sitting on stage. Looking at everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, so continue. Cats is not a flop. Shockingly. Some of these musicals, I'm like, they're so bad. It's like, how can you write hair and then write a horrible musical? I know. But then Alex was like, is hair even that good? And I'm like, you know, they have that one good song, but I don't know. Is Cats even that good? It's just like, no, Cats you're is, is wild too. Seriously. No, I know. I don't know if there's, if Cats is actually good or if hair is good or like any of these are good. I feel like. Just has a little something in it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Anyways. Okay. So 2018, there was King Kong. And it featured a 20-foot-tall, 2,000-pound animatronic gorilla that was controlled by 35 puppeteers. So an example of how the... Because it was part animatronic, part puppet. So some puppeteers were on trapezes, and they would launch themselves off the puppet's shoulders as counter counterweights to raise Kong's arms. So that's the type of stuff that was going on. Oh, my God. The play did really well in Australia, but then when they brought it to Broadway... Um, they had Jack Thorne, the guy who wrote Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, to do some rewrites, but the play still failed. Basically, the animatronic was amazing, all the critics said, but the rest of the play wasn't. I... It's so interesting, though, how some plays like do really well in one place, in other countries, mm -hmm. or just not. In... I guess it's like you go to Broadway and you expect one thing. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. um, okay, I'm going to end talking about one of the biggest flops ever, although I don't know if it's really a turkey because it did run for three years, but I feel like it's one of the most infamous bad Broadway plays, and that's Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. Oh. So this one, I think it's like lost the most money out of any Broadway play. It cost $75 million to make, and it closed with a loss of $60 million. <gasps> so, yeah, it was created by Julie Taymor, who made The Lion King. Oh my god uh, and it the music was composed by bono and the edge from u2 yeah so it has like all these you know good things it was one of the most technically complex productions of all times with 27 sequences of characters flying through the air but a lot of things i read said that julie taymore she didn't really like like spider-man like the marvel spider-man she didn't care about marvel spider-man um, and, you know, Spider-Man kind of has this, like, wholesome, funny, doesn't take itself too seriously type mm -hmm. of vibe. Um, instead, the play was more of, like, a melodrama based on the Greek myth um, about Arach, Arache, the god of spiders, who's, like, a villain in Greek mythology. Oh, my God. Okay. How highbrow. Yeah, This is Spider-Man exactly. we're talking about. Come on. And apparently she, like, wants to, she, like, the plot when it was first came out was, like, she wanted to kidnap mary jane so that she could have spider-man to herself so it was also like she wanted to sleep with spider-man it was this weird thing but when marvel's creative officer david mazel signed off on the project he said quote the musical will adversely affect marvel's brand due to the level of sexuality and extreme adult themes that are inappropriate for both the character and the musical okay so tamor ended up leaving the show and it was half rewritten by someone else to make it less about um arachne and less sexual and they added in an actual spider-man villain like the green goblin okay 
um, but it didn't seem to help much. The biggest issue was that there were so many injuries, so multiple stunt people ended up with broken bones. During previews, Christopher Tierney fell from a 30-foot platform and cracked his skull. (gasps) But to make matters worse, he happened to fall during a pre-recorded scream, so audiences were confused about what what happened, what was happening. Even some actors suffered concussions and other injuries. So it lasted about three years. um, How did it last that long? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's because, like, they spent all this money off of it, and there's, like, I saw some statistics about what musicals end up doing really well, and a lot of it is adaptations or based on already, like, characters who are already loved. Mm-hmm. So it's like they have Spider-Man, but Woof. it didn't work. Woof. Um, yeah, so it lost a bunch of money. It's, like, one of the most notorious, like, bad place to this day. Uh, my girlfriend saw Spider-Man on Broadway. <gasps> I'm so jealous of her that she was able to see it um and she says the music was like good i don't know she liked it nothing bad happened when right. she saw it. but she also doesn't she's not into like spider-man i feel like i really like you Spider-Man, like spider-man and a lot, i wouldn't yeah. have liked that it's not like the spider-man vibe yeah um but i'm going to end with a quote from ken mandelbaum who wrote the book uh not since carrie 40 years of broadway musical flops kind of talking about how flops are like i don't know some people have, are, like, interested in flops because it's so wild oh, that something yeah. could make it this far onto Broadway, have this many people have their hands in it, and then it's still not good. Right. So, quote, flops are a seasonal Broadway staple, but for a variety of reasons, some are not soon forgotten. Their titles are summoned up by aficionados as exemplars of disgrace, humiliation, and utter chaos. Posters from history's most notorious bombs hang proudly on the walls of Joe Allen, the theater district eatery. In some cases, the number of people who claim to have seen a one-night-only debacle exceeds the capacity of the theater. <laughs> so, like, everyone wants to claim that they were there for the, like... I mean, imagine one of these, like, Carrie that only played for seven or so right, nights. Right, Like, if you were able to see it when it was on Broadway. Wild. But then I'm thinking, like, okay, the Shroud of whatever this one mm-hmm. that's a tough thing to make a play about but it's a tough thing to make as a musical i think true but then i think of like well i don't know obviously hamilton's a really interesting story but like that could easily have also been a bad it really could have flopped musical oh my god then we wouldn't you have one Manu- manuel miranda running around yeah we would have encanto <laughs> um but yeah i don't know i mean mm-hmm. you think of like all those those plays in the 80s and it was like always the same people kind of doing everything yeah and i think that sometimes you need like a new not sometimes obviously you need like new fresh people to come in and change the game yeah you need people th- to throw paint at the wall essentially yeah uh referencing carrie here but like mm-hmm. you know just like to spice it up a little bit yeah you're not throw gonna blood like on the prom stage exactly you're not gonna like force or like change the art unless you have someone who's like forcing the hand a little bit Mm-hmm. I, for one, would love to see Carrie on stage. I've never actually seen Carrie or read the book, so... But it's also not my vibe. No. I, the movie's good. I mean, obviously the movie's good. It's like a freaking classic. Yeah. But they also remade it, and I thought the remake was pretty decent mm. as well. Um, but yeah, that's it. That's all what I got. Broadway wow. turkeys. Oh, okay. I'm glad you did that. Because like, I was thinking like I should look that up and see what turkey means, but then I didn't. <laughs> um, she didn't. Okay, what a what a good week, I guess, for us. You sound confident. I do. I'm very confident, as you know. 
We're still running a high from winning a trivia game last night. Yeah, we're pretty we're pretty impressive, actually. Invite us to your so, trivia nights. We might not come, but you can always invite us. Yeah. At, well, because we're usually, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like for all the trivia we ingest, when I go to like a bar trivia, I'm useless. No, I, I feel the same way. Sometimes I'm like on and other times I'm like, nope, I don't know any of this. Yeah. At all. We're not well, maybe we're not well-rounded enough. There's like some things that I know a lot about and then anything oh, else, I know. sports. I saw someone tweet about having like sports clues in the crossword. I was like, that's like my kryptonite. That's my kryptonite as well. Know. I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, well, what's your kryptonite? <laughs> Tell us. You can find us on Twitter at the Good Eve Girls. Or Instagram at the Good Evening Girls. Or TikTok at the Good Eve Girls um not only do we want you to think about your kryptonite for this week's homework but also please stay curious we love keep curious keep curious sorry keep curious not stay curious um we need the alliteration we love making sure that your brains are working out there in the wide wide world so Mm -hmm. keep it up your brains nice and lubed up lube it that's what she said those gears (laughs) gearing and the Uh, juice is flowing and we'll see it we'll see you next week same place same time um Yeah. Bye. Okay, bye.